Am I in the right place? <laughs> just kidding. <clears throat> thank you uh, so much. I just want to uh, thank you all again. Um, I want to thank all of you as a congregation for uh, giving me that extended time off. Uh, it was a, a rough uh, couple of years, 18 months, whatever it's been, as, as all of you know. Um, and I think one statistic uh, showed over the course of this time that something like 70% of pastors at least considered resigning uh, over this, this past time. So uh, I appreciate and really um, so grateful that you gave me that time just for rest and refreshment. I'm especially grateful for the elders and their support, and really especially for Jeff, because he really took the bulk of that on himself. He prepared uh, the, the worship services every week. He preached twice. He led the services. So again, there was a lot on you. So thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. And um, just so you know, uh, it was, in fact, a, a very restful and uh, refreshing time. Um, I, I've mentioned to some of the elders that, uh, in fact, I probably laughed more um, over the course of that uh, time, that month, than I, maybe even than I have the, the eight years that I've been here. Uh, and not that the eight years have been bad, it's just that, um, in fact, it's wonderful. I wouldn't want to uh, lead any other church, but as a pastor, you, you just carry past the weight of the pastoral ministry with you every day. And so it was really nice to, to kind of be able to, to get away from that for a while and, uh, and, and, and laugh with everyone. Uh, I can tell you that um, there was, uh, for the most part, uh, it was, uh, again, very restful, very relaxing, uh, very rejuvenating. However, there was one point uh, during that month where something unexpected uh, hit me uh, that literally uh, threw me for a loop that was uh, so powerful it, it, it was beyond my control and it was something that I had never experienced before and felt like it could have uh, very easily altered the course of my life uh, in that one second. And that was that we were on the beach in Ocean City, Maryland, and, uh, and as I like to do, uh, I was out body surfing. And uh, I don't really like using the boogie boards and stuff. They give you a rash, and I just think I, feel I have more control when I'm just body surfing. So I was body surfing wave after wave after wave, and then this one wave I was surfing in, and interestingly, we had just like a few days earlier as a family uh, at the beach house, gathered around and watched the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, if you're familiar with that. Uh, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, it was too shallow, and she broke her neck and was paralyzed for the rest of her life. Well, I was body serving this wave in, and uh, it just suddenly thrust me downward, uh, unlike a, a wave I had ever felt in my life, and the force behind that pushing downward was something that I had never felt from a wave, and it slammed my head uh, straight into the packed-in wet sand that, that's at the ocean floor, and it felt like my head hit, might as well be hitting this uh, pulpit. I mean, it didn't move, and so all that force and my body weight and everything else hitting there, and my neck, my body just went completely up over my head, and my neck just, I mean, I felt I heard like everything crack in my neck. 
and, uh, and my whole body got flipped over my head. And by the time I stood up, I can't tell you how many times I thanked God that day that, uh, that I was even able to stand because I felt like I was an inch away from being paralyzed uh, from the neck down. The, the force was so great. And I didn't body surf another wave the rest of the week. I might not ever again for the rest of my, it was that traumatizing. And, uh, and I still am dealing with it. I mean, my, I, my head hurt the rest of the day uh, my neck and back hurt the rest of the time, and even this morning as I talk to you, it's still very stiff, e even as I turn. So uh, I did some kind of major damage there. But the point, uh, the reason I bring that up is not, not only to tell you that, but, but that kind of uh, impact on me, it, it completely threw that vacation and, and everything that I had planned to do for a loop. I was I was, uh, it, it just upended everything that had been going on at that point. And I'm sure all of you have probably experienced something like that in your life, where you're, you're, you're going along and you have everything planned uh, a certain way, and then something happens and it completely upends everything that had been going a certain way. And it's very somewhat similar, although at a much minor level, to what happened to the main person in the story of Job. His life was completely upended. And our text today is not uh, the first chapter of Job. This is a, a standalone sermon, but it is Job chapter 28. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up to that chapter and follow along as I read. If you need a Bible, then bring one. If you look in the chairs uh, under, uh, underneath the chair in front of you, there'll be one uh, there, and it'll be the same uh, translation. Hear God's word, Job chapter 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it. 
nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The book of Job can be summarized or outlined, if you want to really do a, a very simple outline, uh, you can outline it this way, the chapters 1 and 2 really detail Job's tragedy, what happened to him. And then there's this huge section in the middle, almost the rest of the book, uh, chapters 3 through 37, is uh, Job's conversation with friends, I use that term loosely, who want to converse with him about what happened with him and why it happened. Uh, after that, chapters 38 through 42 basically the rest of the book, is Job's conversation, if you will, with God about what happened to him. And at the very end, the end of chapter 22, is Job's restoration, which kind of mirrors the tragedy at the beginning. But by far the largest section, as I said, of the book of Job is this discussion, this discussion as to why this thing happened. Well, what was it that happened? Well, briefly, Scripture says that Job was a righteous man, that Job walked with God, that Job prayed with God, that he followed God, and that he was blessed immensely by God. Scripture tells us that, that he had a wife, and that he had many children, and that, and that he had a plethora of animals, oxen and uh, sheep and camels and donkeys, and that he had many, many servants. Job, the first chapter, sums it up by saying that Job was simply, quote, the greatest of all the people of the East. And so you can imagine Job's life, much like that day of mine on the beach, just enjoying life, uh, uh, enjoying the fruits of his labor and his uh, relationship with God and, and all of the things that God had given him. And then we find that Satan enters the picture. And Satan approaches God. And Satan tells God that Job fears God and follows God for a reason. Satan says to God, have you not put a hedge around him? Have you not put a hedge around his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand 
and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Job asks permission of God to essentially uh, wreak havoc in Job's life. And, and one of the things that we find, although that may not be the most comfortable uh, thought that Satan is uh, seeking to wreak havoc in the lives of God's people, Scripture tells us that all over, but one of the things that we do see that perhaps we can take comfort in is the fact that Satan, as we uh, confessed earlier in our confession of sin, has to ask God's permission. Satan is not running rampant. He is under God's divine authority. And God grants that permission. God sovereignly, mysteriously, and by his own good counsel, takes away almost everything that he had given to Job. And Job even says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job's ideal, idyllic life was in an instant upended and turned around uh, he was thrown for a loop everything was destroyed and even his wife who didn't die uh, encouraged Job because it was so horrific she said look just curse God and die how does Job respond well it's a real model for us. He, he looks at his wife and says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil, i.e. disaster? And scripture sums it up by saying, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's important to note, though, before we too hastily uh, look to Job as almost a model that we could never live up to. It's important to know, again, that though Job did not sin with his lips, that though he did not curse God and die, that, that though he didn't go down that road, that though he accepted this from God and, and didn't sin, he was not some picture of quiet stoicism who felt nothing over what had happened. In fact, as I said, the, most of the rest of the book is a picture of Job's agonizing and weeping and crying and wondering why. Why did God allow this to happen to me? That's one of the things that I most appreciate about Scripture. Scripture does not shy away from the difficulties of life. Scripture does not present tragedies as some pie in the sky, something that does not affect us. But Scripture, more than any other book I've ever read, not only shows us life's tragedies in the starkest way, but again, shows how much those tragedies impact us as human beings. Job, his three, again, I use the term loosely, friends, I mean, they start out well, they gather around him, they sit and weep with him, they, they quietly support him, and then when that time is up, they then begin to suggest, in fact, accuse Job of wrongdoing, that there was no way that all of this could have possibly happened to Job unless he deserved it somehow. 
We know from the beginning of the book that, in fact, Job did nothing wrong. Well, he wasn't sinless, but he did nothing to, uh, to bring this judgment upon himself. That's clearly stated. And so Job maintains his innocence. I, I didn't do anything to deserve this, he says. This has happened to me, and I don't know why. And they keep trying to give him a reason why this must have happened. And so this agonizing discussion and debate goes back and forth, back and forth, all the way through chapter 27. And then suddenly, chapter 28 appears. Chapter 28, which is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, is so different from what comes before that it seems as though it's spoken by someone else other than either Job or his friends. It's so very different in tone. In fact, it's so different that that scholars uh, have even suggested, without warrant, really there's no textual warrant for this, that that perhaps Job chapter 28 was actually belonged to some other book in the Bible, and then some later uh, editor just threw it into this section of Job because it just doesn't fit. One scholar says this, this is a very different chapter from all that has gone before and all that follows. It's a unique chapter in the book. It has no smooth literary connection with the immediate context before or after. It's not explicitly addressed to any of the participants. It contains no accusations, no complaints, no responses to anything said previously. And it has a reflective tone which contrasts with the passionate arguments on either side. Here in chapter 28 is tranquil, contemplative pause for thought. So that's what we find here in Job chapter 28. And when you look at verses 1 through 11, you see there this very poetic, magnificent picture drawn for us. It is a picture painted or drawn of a remote area of the world. No one lives there. No one travels there. Nobody's uh, setting up a vacation plan to go tour this area with their family. It is so remote that it's been forgotten by everyone else. Animals don't even frequent it, or if they do, uh, they pass by not knowing anything that goes on there. It seems lifeless. It seems dead. And yet, if you were to look beneath the surface of that land, you'd see all kinds of crazy activity going on. If you could look beneath the surface, you'd see men down there. You'd see men down there in the gloom and the darkness, and and they're down there opening up shafts in the rock. They're working extremely hard. They're they're risking their lives. They're they're hanging, they're dangling on ropes, swaying back and forth, forgotten by the rest of mankind, perhaps forgotten by their families that they've abandoned to do this work. They're turning up the rock. And scholars point out that what we have in here is a very accurate description of ancient mining practices. One scholar says this, verse 5 You see verse 5 there. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. 
He says, you read that, and it sounds like it could be a reference to volcanic action. But there is very ancient evidence of shaft mining where fire was used to split rocks to reach ore. So that's exactly what's being described here. But the question remains, what in the world are they doing down there? Why would anyone go here is the question. Well, we're told right from the start that there are things of great value to these men down there. Silver, gold, iron, copper, precious gems. It reminds me of the... Uh, dwarves and the Lord of the Rings going down deep into the mines of Moria. And what we see here is a picture, really, of the in industry and, and the intelligence and the drive and the passion that you see in human beings when they go after something that they're passionate about getting, when they go after something that is, is of value to them. They will go to all kinds of lengths and they will use their intelligence that God has given them, their ingenuity, their, their drive, and their understanding of how things work to get at this thing. And when I was in Israel, I visited places like Caesarea Maritima, a, a great harbor right there on the Mediterranean Sea. I, I visited Masada, that incredible stronghold, both designed and built by King Herod. Why? Well, because he had a passion uh, for these things. And so he utilized all of his knowledge and his architectural brilliance and his slave labor and all this to get these things accomplished. And as they're standing on the top of Masada, you look around and you think, this thing seems unassailable. Who in the world could ever scale this cliff and get up here? And yet the Romans when they had a passion to kill the Jews that were hiding in Masada, used their ingenuity and their intelligence to build ramparts that scaled the side of the mountain so that they could get in and kill everyone alive. None of which who were because they committed mass suicide before the Romans arrived. We see here in these first 11 verses that Mankind has great intelligence, far more than animals who were just uh, sort of stupidly walking over top of everything. But the question remains still, and it's the question that is asked in verse 12, where shall wisdom be found? You see, that is the, the central question that we find here in chapter 28. It's asked twice. And when we speak of wisdom here, Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham, he says this, that what this verse means by wisdom is not what we might think of as wisdom, just kind of cleverness. When this passage speaks of wisdom, he says it means a full understanding of the world and the order according to which it runs. See, that's the question here. Where can that be found? In other words, what Job chapter 28 is saying is that human beings, through all kinds of means, can uncover 
and know and develop lots of random stuff to get at what we find valuable. I was just reading an article this past week uh, that was speaking about the microchip and, and the, the development of the microchip. And I am not a computer guy at all. I'm taking this article for what it's worth. It sounds far-fetched to me, but some of you in here who are computer experts might know. But the guy that wrote this article said that the microchip that is found in our phones is pound for pound or ounce for ounce or however you want to describe it, the most powerful source of energy in the known universe. That pound for pound, it's more powerful than the sun. It shows you that when we desire to have a little bit faster dial-up, to search things on the internet, we will go to great lengths to create something more powerful than the sun to get us there if we have to. But what this chapter is saying, though, when it brings up this question of wisdom, is that all of that isolated stuff that we think is so grand cannot tell us why we exist in the first place. These questions that haunt us, why is there something rather than nothing? Why am I here? What is the purpose for my existence? What is life's highest good? The microchip does not give us those answers. Science, friends, can teach us a lot of things but it cannot answer those questions. Specific to Job, the question he is asking is, why did all of this happen to me? And the gold and silver and ore and copper and all of those things cannot give him that answer. That's what he wants to know. And notice how different this wisdom, this understanding of the universe is from everything else. The question is, where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? We know where all of these other things can be found. We've unearthed them. doesn't matter that they were remote and, and far down and that you had to split rock to get to them. We still got to them. We know where they were found. But what about wisdom? See, as regards to wisdom, we can't even get at it because we don't even know how to get to it. Why not? Well, verse 13, man does not know its worth. It is not found in the land of the living. See, we don't know its worth. Think of how true this is. Think of you before you came to know the Lord. Think of the millions and billions of people right now on the earth, your neighbors and coworkers that you know that did not know the Lord. They get up every day They work hard. They get up. They might even use a daily planner. They might even be listening to speakers to to tell them how to better structure their lives and and accomplish more with their lives. And and they're getting up and they're working hard and they're trying to advance in their job. And and they're having families and they're saving up for the the boat they've always wanted. And they're saving up for this big trip that they want to go on and, and all of these things. And yet... They cannot even tell you why they exist in the first place. 
But the bigger point is, they don't even seem to care that they don't know. Doesn't that define almost everyone? Why are we doing all of this? Why do we keep pressing on? What is the goal? I mean, we just decide one day what our major is. I'm going to major in this. We decide what our life's purpose is. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And we decide in ourselves what our purpose is for being here. We know we didn't make ourselves. We we know that we don't sustain ourselves. We know we didn't create the universe, and yet we act as though we did. But the thing is, even if we did know how valuable the wisdom was, in our own intelligence and ability, we could not find it. Why not? Because it's not found anywhere on earth. I mean, think of that rare person. Not the person I just described, but think of that rare person, the philosopher. The philosopher who decides that he is going to set everything else aside, and figure out what the meaning of life is. We've had many of them. When I was in Maryland as a, a early 20-something, uh, I started a philosophy group. And, uh, and we would get together once a week, every week, and we started with the pre-Socratics, and, and then we started working our way through and, and read the philosophers. And we read what they had to say about the meaning of life this ultimate purpose for the universe. And the interesting thing is, every successive philosopher countered the one before and said, well, he thought he knew, but he really doesn't know. I know better. And then the one that came after him would counter him, and it just went on like this ad infinitum. And we're still here today with modern-day philosophers who probably don't go on trips, don't seek for money, live in rags, and uh, try to figure out the meaning of life. And yet, Scripture says that it's not found on earth. All of that searching will not give you the meaning of life. Well, the next question could be, well, does it really matter? Maybe wisdom isn't that valuable in the first place. Maybe it's one of these things that, like, you know, I might not ever get to kiss the Blarney Stone, but I really don't care. Is that wisdom? Well, verses 14 to 19 would counter that thinking. Verses 14 to 19 says that that of all the things that we spend our precious hours obtaining, the, the jobs, the degrees, the gadgets, the lifestyles, the families, the stock market, the great times, the the interesting experiences. You could add them all together and their value could not equal the value of wisdom, knowing why we are here and what our purpose is. More importantly, it says that even if you wanted to take all of those things and exchange it for wisdom, you could not. Because wisdom is priceless. It cannot be bought with any commodity it's not for sale proverbs 3 blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold 
She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. So the question is asked again in verses 20 and 22. From where then does wisdom come? Where's the place of understanding? And it's interesting here that the answer is a little different here. The one thing that is brought up that throws a little bit of a curveball in is death. We have heard rumor of it with our ears. It's interesting that, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this, the person who is lying on his or her deathbed, the person who knows that he or she has only a little while to live, oftentimes gains some kind of clarity about life. You talk to them and, and they'll say, I, I wish I hadn't been so foolish in life. I wish I had spent more time with my family rather than time at the office. I, I wish I hadn't done this or that. Death brings some kind of clarity. And yet, even death does not provide for anyone the ultimate answers for life. So then who does? That's the question of chapter 28. And the answer that we find in the rest of this chapter is that the mysteries of life in the universe are found in only one place. Wisdom is found not in this universe, but in the one who created the universe. Notice God understands the way to it. God knows its place. And why? Because God is the only one who knows everything. God knows, it says, because he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. And notice here how interesting it is that Job, or whoever the speaker is here in chapter 28, uh, it looks now at the thing that even now is probably more than anything else most out of our control. I mean, chapter 28 has already explained how, how brilliant humans are, our ingenuity and our ability to control and shape and, and even overturn mountains to get at what we want. And yet, what do we do even today with the microchip in our hand in the face of a powerful storm? Hurricane Ida just showed us what we do. We hunker down or we run and we hope for the best. And yet, look at this. It is these most out of control things, the wind, the rain, the storms, the lightning, and the thunder that are perfectly controlled, planned, and executed by the God who created them. And it is this God who, after 27 chapters of Job and his friends going back and forth and back and forth, it is God who finally speaks in verse 28. What does he say? Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Psalm 111, 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So verse 28 brings us, in a way, back to the very beginning of Job. Because what we read in the very beginning of Job is that Job is a man who fears God and turns away from evil. Job, in the entire book, is the one wise man that we find. All along, Job has had wisdom in his grasp. Job has been asking why. And even at the very end of the book, even after God speaks audibly to Job, he still doesn't quite know the reason why any of this happened to him. But you see, he doesn't need to be told. He doesn't have to be told the reasons why. Because in fearing God, he knows the one who knows why. And he can rest in him. In having God himself, Job has the one in whom are found all the answers to life's most pressing questions. It's interesting that when Jesus showed up on the scene many, many years later, he calmed the wind and the waves, showing that he alone is the God of whom Job 28 speaks and demonstrating that he alone is the fount of all wisdom. Paul says in Colossians 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, how great a struggle I have for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. The early church struggling, being persecuted, being hounded, Paul's writing to them. He says, I want them to know that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Brothers and sisters, how amazing is it that though we, in our own pitiful uh, weakness and lack of knowledge, we who know next to nothing about why things happen, that through the illumination and power of the Holy Spirit, we can pick this book up and understand the reasons why things happen. That we can glean from it the wisdom of God. You see, in Christ... We don't have to wonder anymore about what our purpose is for living. We have the answers. My dad told me that uh, before he came to faith in Christ, he would go to a party and, and ask uh, many people at the party, just go around and say, hey, what, what do you think love is? And he said if he asked 50 different people, he'd get 50 different answers. And he had just resigned himself that he's never going to know what true love is. And then a man that he worked with was a living light. 
he asked him, why are you different? And the man gave him a Bible and said, I want you to read Romans and you'll find out what the meaning is. My dad started reading Romans and through God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit came to faith. And then he continued on just reading through the New Testament. And he reached this letter called 1 Corinthians. And as he was reading through, he got to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as he read that, he said, now I know. All this time I've wondered, what is love? And now I know because the God of all wisdom has revealed it to me. And I don't have to wonder anymore what true love is. But you see, even in those moments when our lives are upended and we can't open this and find the answer, there's a lot in here, but it doesn't deal with everything that happens in our lives. Things happen in our lives and and we don't know the answer. And we wait and we pray and we seek God's face and maybe we never will. But you see, even in those moments when we're like Job, when we don't know the future, when we don't know what the future holds, in Christ we know the one who holds the future. See, I had lunch, it's, I, I just got back from a month away and, and I met with a member and we were out to lunch and this member is welling up with tears telling me all of the things going on in his life and all of the hardship in his life and how everything is just combining to to feels like he's on the ropes and I could sense anxiety in him over all of this and it was such a privilege to open up to Matthew chapter 7 and be able to speak to him from the mouth of pure wisdom and say do not be anxious don't worry your father knows what you need and he will provide it but even better still (laughs) i'm not sure if it was better than reading scripture but i was able to say to him but brother you might not know ever why these things are happening to you but your lord does and you can rest in him you see job is a picture of our savior Where is wisdom hidden? We heard it earlier in our scripture reading. The wisdom of God is found in the cross. This world thinks it's foolishness or a stumbling block. But you see, like Job, our Lord feared God. And he turned from evil his entire life. Only unlike Job, he did it perfectly. Like Job, our Lord Jesus was blameless before God. Only in his case, it meant perfectly sinless. Like Job, our Lord, despite being a godly man, suffered. And if we think Job suffered greatly, it wasn't anything in compared to what Jesus, our Lord, suffered. Like Job, our Lord Jesus had his friends turn away from him in his moment of despair but you see unlike job our lord jesus knew why he was suffering in fact that's why he came he said i came to earth for one main mission and that is to suffer 
He didn't have to wonder, although it was agonizing to him. He said before it ever happened, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Brothers and sisters, take heart. What a blessing and a privilege it is that we few of all the myriad of the world's lost know what our purpose in life is. It is to glorify our Lord God. And what a joy it is more than that to know the one in whom all of life's answers are found. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful chapter, for the reminder, Lord, that all of the wisdom and knowledge of God are found in Christ. And that we have Christ, our Lord, in us through the Holy Spirit, and that we have your word inscripturated. Lord, we pray that you would give us a hunger and a desire to seek wisdom from you every day, and that you would impart that upon us so that we may know how to walk through this world wisely. Father, thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.